Thank you, and uh, yes, good morning, everybody. I thought I'd actually start this morning with a quiz question. What has been described as the best known, the most visited, the most written about, and most sung about, and most parodied work of art in the world? All right, I'll give you a few seconds to try and think at home as to what your answer to that would be. Well, the answer is... It's the Mona Lisa by Renaissance master Leonardo da Vinci. The funny thing about the Mona Lisa is it's also one of the most stolen paintings or the most attempted stolen. Many people over the last 500 years have said to themselves, "Mm, yeah, I think I'd risk going to prison for that. But here's the thing though. I reckon a lot of people would look at the Mona Lisa and go, meh. Uh, I guess it's all right. And I've got to say that if I was there and I look at it, I'd have to admit, I'd probably be one of those too. I don't quite see it. But I tell you what I'd love to do. I'd love to go to Paris. I could actually just probably finish the sentence there, but I'll, I'll keep going. I'd love to go to Paris. I'd love to visit the Louvre. I'd love to have beside me the curator of Renaissance art and have that person explain to me exactly why the Mona Lisa is such a world-famous masterpiece and reveal to me what I'm not quite seeing. When you think of the church, the gathering of God's people, what do you see? Do you see God's great masterpiece? Or do you go, meh, I guess it's all right. Because you see, it's not always that impressive to look at, is it? Are we? A bunch of different people from different ages and different backgrounds meeting together to worship. Not necessarily the same people even that you would necessarily choose to hang out with if you could pick any bunch of people to hang out with in the world. Not all people that are super impressive. In fact, truth to be told, some of them might even get on your nerves a bit. And yet, God's great masterpiece is what the Scriptures say that the church is. And so far in Ephesians, we've been given a tour by the curator of the gospel, the Apostle Paul, who has been at pains to point out just what a masterpiece a bunch of sinners that have been reconciled to one another and to God in Christ really is. A curator who says, you bet I would go to jail for that. And for the last two weeks, we've been blessed to hear about two amazing transformations brought about by the Gospel. If you've got a Bible in front of you, have a look at Ephesians 2. We get two tragic befores, followed by two magnificent but-nows. So, for instance, have a look again at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. That presented to us that amazing reality that before, we were spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins under the influence of the forces of evil and destined for God's wrath. 
But now, God has made us alive in Christ. He has saved us purely by His grace and not by anything that we have done. He's destined us for glory. And in the meantime, He gives us new lives with a new purpose. Then you look at the next passage, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. It looked at the same thing, but kind of from a community perspective. So before, non-Jewish believers were far away from God and His people, separated by a hostile divide. But now, in Christ, have been brought near, together as one people, reconciled to one another, reconciled to God, together being shaped by Him into a united, loving and holy community with God Himself dwelling in and among us. What a long way that is from far away and divided by hostility. You see, Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most distilled celebrations of the gospel and its consequences that you're going to read in the Bible. You can almost feel Paul's passion in that chapter as he strives to communicate to his readers just how astounding God's grace to us in Jesus really is so that we might comprehend the incomparably great power that God has worked for us who believe. But just in case you didn't pick up that passion in chapter 2, along comes chapter 3. Look how it begins. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. But the chapter begins with Paul about to say something, but then he stops. He reminds his readers that as, as he's dictating this letter, he is in prison as a direct result of his work in bringing the good news of Jesus to them, to the, to the non-Jewish world. Now, in all likelihood, this is the same imprisonment in Rome that you would read about in Acts chapter 28. So, what I actually thought we'd do for a moment is go back to the book of Acts return to Acts and and just remind ourselves exactly how Paul got into prison in the first place. So, if you've got a Bible in front of you, which I hope you do, um, place a marker in Ephesians and I want you to turn back with me to Acts chapter 21. So, Acts chapter 21. Now, let me um, get you up to speed. Um, Paul has been travelling through the Mediterranean, the the Eastern Mediterranean, um, and he's been telling the Gentiles, about Jesus. Um, And he's just farewelled the elders of the churches at Ephesus. And he arrives back in Jerusalem. And in verses 17 to 26 of chapter 21, it's clear that his mission to the Gentile world hadn't gone unnoticed by the Jewish world. Even the Christian leaders there, while they're rejoicing at the success of Paul's mission, warn him of trouble and rumours that are arising amongst Jewish believers from what Paul has been preaching. And so, what they do is they encourage him to try and, you know, smooth that over by helping sponsor some Jewish Christians who'd made a vow and going to the temple to help them do that. And so, Paul says, all right, I'll do that. And he goes to the temple. Now, look at what happens. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. 
they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And so what happens is that the Romans then come and they rescue Paul, but while they're rescuing him from a riotous, murderous mob, Paul persuades them to give him the opportunity to address the crowd. And they do. And And he then gives them the story of how he met Jesus, the risen, resurrected Jesus, on the road to Damascus. He tells them about his conversion. He tells about his commissioning by Jesus the Jewish Messiah, to preach the gospel. Here's the thing though, the crowd were willing to listen to all this. But look what happens when he starts to tell them who Jesus wanted him to preach the gospel to. Chapter 22, verse 21. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. You're getting the picture? And from that point on, in the rest of the book of Acts, Paul moves from prison to prison, he faces plots to murder him, he eventually, in order to protect himself, he has to appeal to Caesar and he finds himself shipped off to Rome to plead before him there and that's where he's in prison. And that's where he's writing Ephesians from. Now do you see just how real this hostility that we looked at last week really was? Just how deep the divide? They were willing to hear him talk about Jesus the Messiah, but a Messiah that saves Gentiles, that marks him for death. And it all started not just because of his association with Gentiles, but with an Ephesian Gentile at that. And those that started the riot were Jews from Asia, the province of which Ephesus is the capital. Paul was not understanding it, understating it, when he described himself as a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. But as he reminds them of this, it also takes him on a sidetrack. In the time between his departure from Ephesus to the time that he wrote the letter, years have passed and the the churches around Ephesus had grown and he realises that not everyone there would grasp just how momentous his ministry for them had been. And maybe they were feeling discouraged at the thought that the great apostle being in prison was all their fault. Well, over the next 12 verses, Paul reassures them 
that he didn't regret his ministry for one moment, and nor should they. He begins by telling them that this ministry, to tell them about Jesus, was in fact, he views it as God's gift. Look at verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul's ministry among them was God being generous, both to him and to them. That wonderful day on the road to Damascus when Jesus himself commissioned Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, that was the moment that he was being brought into a plan that had been kept hidden from people for countless ages. But he was now having it revealed to him at this perfect time. What he calls here in verse 4, the mystery of Christ. The Holy Spirit had revealed it to the prophets and now to his apostles. But previous generations never understood it or even guessed as to what God was going to do. But that is exactly what God graciously revealed to Paul. And it was this, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This is that wonderful message of reconciliation that we looked at last week. One new people, united together in Christ, together sharing the benefits of the wonderful promises of God. This was the mystery that had been hidden from everybody else for all ages, but Paul has it revealed to him and he recognises what a blessing that is. Paul has been given a privileged window into the great plan of God for the world. This isn't a burden. This revelation is a tremendous gift of God. But the gift of God was not just the knowledge of this ministry, of this mystery, I beg your pardon, but the honoured task of being able to tell others about it, proclaiming it to the world. Listen to his words there in verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. By the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. It's nothing less, in Paul's eyes, than his life's greatest honour that he might be able to be used by God to preach this mystery so powerfully and effectively to the very people to whom this gospel is now open but it had been closed for millennia. Listen as the language of gift and grace just continues to come out of his mouth. Look at verse 8. Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And see, why wouldn't he see this as a privilege? Now look how he describes the message that he's bringing to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, the blessings of the Messiah that they used to know nothing about and have no access to. 
That's a fair way to describe the good news of God's promised King dying for the sins of His people and giving them eternal life, I think, don't you? Boundless riches of Christ. Yep, that works. And in preaching the gospel, he's making plain, or literally he's, he's giving light to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. The administration of this mystery, that is, the hidden plans of the creator God himself that come along with the gospel. As he preaches the gospel, he gets to enlighten people about who God is and how he works and what he desires for people. Now, can I just say, this might have been Paul's role in particular as the apostle to the Gentiles, but do you know that when we, you or me, share the good news of Jesus, we're doing no differently. God is giving you the same privileged opportunity that Paul had. You're telling people about the boundless riches of Christ that is available for them. You're revealing for them nothing less when you tell them the gospel of the plan of God himself that they could know that they can be a part of. That's what you're doing when you're sharing the gospel. That's the truth of the matter. And I reckon we need to remember that more often when we interact with those in our lives who are not yet Christian and when it is that we are sharing what we believe. You know, I've often wondered what it would be like um, to be in sales for, for a company. You know, to be asked, tasked with convincing prospective clients that the product that I'm selling is something that they or their business should buy and invest in. Now, I know that many of you who are watching do this a lot as part of your job. Well, you would know then how much easier it is to do that when you're thoroughly convinced of the worthiness of the product that you're selling. When you don't need to kind of kind of squint when you're telling, hey, you should get this because it's really good. But when you go, no, I believe in what I'm selling. I, I, I know that it's good and you would, be, um, you would benefit from getting this. You know, that, that, that's the power of testimony, isn't it? I've got one of these myself and I love it. I use this myself and it's so helpful. Friends, can I just say, you know the boundless riches of Christ in the gospel. You've received that yourself. You have eternal life because of it. And you know the goodness of the God that you're introducing people to. So can I just encourage you, don't let nervousness or worry about how people might react to be what governs the way you feel about sharing your faith with others. Because, you know, if you do, if you let their reception be the driving thing that, that motivates you or demotivates you, then those riches more likely than not will go unshared, won't they? And the knowledge of God will remain darkened to those around us because we're too timid to share. I think that's why elsewhere we're reminded to be ready to share the hope that we have because it's 
It, that's what we're doing. It's good news and it's big news and it changed your life. So just tell it like it is. Let it pour out from you because it is so good. But what Paul says next here reminds us that the gospel mission of Jew and Gentile alike being united together in Christ is greater in significance than even we might understand understand it to be. And to grasp this properly, I think we need to be reminded afresh that our salvation is not just about our salvation. It's about God's victory. And that is why the unity of Jew and Gentile in the church is so important. What is God's victory in the gospel over? What's God's victory over? Well, sin, isn't it? And the spiritual forces of evil that are opposed to God. Back in the garden, it was the serpent who tempted the man and the woman to rebel against the commands of God and to seek to be wise themselves while rejecting him. And what were the consequences? Well, immediately we see them hiding away from God. We see them covering themselves up from one another as if they were threats to one another. And then the curse happens. And what happens to humanity? You see enmity and rivalry and division happen between people. And ultimately, you get the judgment of death and you get that wonderful symbolism at the end of Genesis 3 of barred off from the tree of life by the proverbial angel with a flaming sword, right? The barrier between humanity and God and humanity and each other seemingly impenetrable. It's as if the serpent's envious plot to divide God from his image bearers appears to have been an overwhelming success. And that is what makes God's victory through the gospel and the way he's victorious through the gospel so glorious. See, the very existence of the church, of a new united humanity, of of people who were dead in their sins, reconciled with one another and with God and destined for eternal life with him, displayed as proof of his power and wisdom to those very spiritual forces who opposed him. It's like you can see how the church is the masterpiece on display before the universe. It's us. We're the masterpiece. We, together, are that masterpiece pointing to God's victory. Look at verses 10 to 12. His intent was that now through the church... The manifold, the word for manifold there is, means many-coloured. It's a beautiful word. It talks about the, the vibrant wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It's a long way from the end of Genesis 3, isn't it? And notice that last part, because of Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That is what God wanted for us all along. And now in the gospel, the mystery of how that could possibly come about 
given the wreckage of sin, is on display. That's us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see the victory there. And that's why Paul finishes his digression with a word of confident reassurance for his troubled readers. Verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And so Paul goes back to what he was going to say before he digressed, and that is to pray. And the content of that prayer, I've got to say, is very similar to the, in substance to the one that ends chapter 1. There, Paul prayed that God would enable the Ephesians to know him better, God better. Remember this? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Well, now, having been taught, having taught the amazing realities of exactly what God has worked by his power and how great it is to be his people, he comes back, he returns and he prays almost the same thing. Now, remember when how, how we looked um, at chapter 1, uh, we were challenged to pray bigger. Do you remember that? Well, this time the prayer seems even bigger than that, <laughs> if that was possible. Before, he wanted to know them to know about the power. This time, he prays that they might experience that power. And he begins by joyfully calling on the one who is both creator and father. For this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. See, this is why I had us read from Isaiah 40 earlier, that great passage that reminded Israel that the Lord is the one from whom the whole universe gets its existence. He, everything derives its name from him and, and is to be honoured accordingly. The thing is that this reality is meant to bring comfort to his people, that he is the Lord of everything and over everything, is a message of comfort, comfort my people. There is nothing beyond him and he works that power on their behalf. That's what Isaiah 40 is about. In that sense, he is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. It's, it's, it's all come from him, he's the authority over all of it. But we understand him to be much more than that for us. We are those who have been reconciled to him in his son and adopted to sonship. So Paul is kneeling before the father who he has just told us that we can now approach with freedom and confidence as adopted sons. And what does he ask of the God who possesses incomparably great power? First, the strength to trust him. 
verse 16 and 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I don't think that he is referring to conversion here, since he's already reassured them that they've been made alive in Christ already. I think the dwelling in your hearts through faith is descriptive of having our hearts, that is our desires and wills, occupied, as it were, by Jesus. That by his power, that through his Spirit's work, Christ would be vibrantly present for us as we live our lives trusting him. How have you been going at praying big over the last few weeks? How have you been going at not just praying for one another circumstantially, but also fundamentally? Well, here is something to add to what you're praying for one another. Pray for your brothers and sisters that the wonderful reality of their relationship with Jesus would never be far from their hearts. That they would be sustained and empowered by this as they live as his ambassadors in the world. And that they might be strong in their dependence and reliance on him in all circumstances. That he might be dwelling and taking up residence in their hearts and wills and motivations. That's a, that's a pretty cool thing to pray for someone, don't you think? Well, the second part of the prayer is that out of his incomparably great riches, God would give the Ephesians power to really know how much they are loved. Look at that. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Now, notice the statement describes a current reality, not a future desire. This is the way you are, being this. The you is plural. That you being rooted and established in love. Paul uses the language of both a tree and a building. The people that God is growing springs from the love that he has shown us in Jesus and, 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 and takes its root in him. The temple that God is building is based on and shaped by the love that he has shown us in Jesus. And given that, Paul's prayer is that as we grow together, as we're being built together, that our understanding and appreciation of that love that, that founded us, that gave us life, might expand and that it might deepen because there is so much more to know about it. Look at verse 18, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We must not miss the emphasis in Paul's prayer here that this wonderful exploration of God's love is something that we would do together, together. And not just with the Christians immediately around us, but in fellowship with all the Lord's holy people, wherever they're meeting around the world. This love-founded 
love-fueled community in Christ is being built throughout the world. And now you get why I describe this prayer as being even bigger. Because look how it ends. And you just can't pray for anything bigger than this. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Makes praying for a bike appear somewhat trivial, doesn't it? Friends, the first three chapters of Ephesians, from the eulogy praising God for his great plan of salvation, to our passage today where a formerly sinful humanity are united together in love, destined to be filled with a measure of all the fullness of God, is, is one wonderful description of God's great masterpiece that is the body of Christ, his church us. Our existence is God's victory on display to the universe. Well, for the rest of the letter, Paul will then go on to teach us how to ensure that this masterpiece gets seen and cherished for what it is. But before he does, he ends this section as it began with praise to the master. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.